We need your Holy Spirit to open our, uh, our minds and our eyes and our ears and our hearts. I pray, Lord, especially for those um, who may have genuine, honest questions about uh, the truthfulness of Christianity. I pray that you would answer those questions this morning. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I started a series last week where we are asking some ultimate questions about the Christian faith and life. And uh, I mentioned that we're going to be using some magic illusions, not to entertain, um, not to show off, but because these tricks really uh, can illustrate some important points. So that's what we hope to do. And um, let me tell you a little bit about my fascination as a magician with magic. I, uh, ever since I was a little kid, I've always been fascinated with magicians. I remember, some of you may remember all the way back on TV, a guy named Mark Wilson and Magic Circus. And then there was Doug Henning who had his magic specials. Uh, and then there was David Copperfield, and now it's Chris Angel. Um, but one of my earliest memories was um, when I was probably in second or third grade, I was on the school bus coming home, and there was a kid on the bus who had a magic trick. And uh, it was, I think it was his birthday or it was Christmas, and he got a magic set for, uh, for, as a gift. And what this trick was was a, a round little plastic box, a little round cylinder with a lid. And uh, he took the lid off, and inside was a little plastic coin. And he laid the coin flat on the bottom of this little box, and he put the lid on. And then there were holes drilled through the box. And he had eight. They were actually like plastic spikes that he pushed through the holes. It went all the way from the top out the bottom, penetrating the coin. And I went home just fascinated with this. I had no idea how he did it. And I thought about it all day, all night. I was obsessed with this thing. Um, now, I was fascinated with that, not because I thought it was real, but because I knew it wasn't real. Okay, My, I didn't go... I can't figure it out, therefore it must be real magic. I mean, it was a plastic trick done by a second grader on the bus. It wasn't real magic. But it still baffled me. And I think at that point is when I really fell in love with the idea of baffling, being baffled or baffling as a form of entertainment, as a form of, uh, of fun, really. So I started, that, that's when I really started studying the art of magic and illusion. I went to the Batavia Library and checked out every magic book and um, just studied, uh, this will sound good coming from your pastor, studied the art of deception, okay? <laughs> and I found out that it is possible to create the illusion of virtually anything that's impossible. Um, some of you have seen some amazing tricks. There's, there's the ring trick, the linking rings, where you take big, solid metal rings. You have people examine them. 
The magician links them together and he hands them back out. And the people examine them. There's no holes and he's linked solid through solid. Uh, there's a trick where you borrow a $100 bill and you have somebody sign it. And it disappears and there's a, a plate with three oranges. And they pick an orange and you cut the orange open and, and inside the orange is the $100 bill. It's amazing. Then there's... Uh, there's the big guys, David Copperfield. Some of you remember he made the Statue of Liberty disappear, and then he brought it back. Okay. Um, this Chris Angel fellow, interesting guy, isn't he? Um, my favorite trick is Chris Angel is riding on a bus, and he goes to the front of the bus as the bus is moving. Right? The bus is full of people. The cameraman is filming him, and he's standing like if this is the bus driver up here, he's standing in the front aisle, and he has somebody pick a card and sign the card. He shuffles it up in the deck, takes the deck, and throws it at the windshield. All the cards fall, but one card is stuck to the windshield. He tells the lady who picked the card to go take the card, and she goes to reach for it. It's not on the inside it's stuck on the outside of the windshield. They stop the bus. She goes around and peels it off the windshield. Okay? That's pretty good stuff, right? He does a trick where he jumps a motorcycle up a ramp. This is at nighttime, but there's spotlights on him. There's a flash of fire. The motorcycle falls to the ground. He's gone, and he appears somewhere else. So what, what I, and, and by the way, I know how to do this stuff, okay? Now, I, it's easy for me to say. It's not that I can pull off the motorcycle trick. Um, <laughs> but I have, uh, I've been exposed to some pretty, uh, pretty amazing secrets. In fact, let me show you one or tell you about one. There's a, a trick uh, that a lot of magicians do where they reach in their pocket and they take out a deck of cards like this, this invisible deck of cards. You see it? Go, go along with me, all right? And um, here, let's go some of the newer folks over here. Okay, what's your name again? Daryl. Daryl, here, catch the deck, Daryl. Got it, all right. And take it out of the box. The cards are in the box. Yeah. Do you play cards, Daryl? Yeah, okay. <laughs> it's church, that. enough said. Okay, now, could you shuffle them up a little bit? That's good. You dropped one on the floor there. Now, um, can you fan them out? Very nice. You are a card player. And you know what? Is there, you can go to anybody in the room and have them pick a card. You got one? All right, now, um, don't show it to me, but show it to everybody else in the room. I won't look, okay? All right, you got it? Now, take your card and turn it upside down and stick it back in the deck. These guys are nuts. Right? Okay. <laughs> Give one more shuffle. Very good. Put it back in the box. Close a little flappy. There you go. And toss it back up here in there. Thank you. And I'm going to put the invisible cards in my pocket. And when I pull them out, they're visible. No, that's not the trick. <laughs> Daryl's going, wow. That's good. All right. Now, um, let me step up here so everybody can see. Now, <laughs> is it, it's Steve, right? You saw the card? All right, you showed it to everybody? Yeah. All right, now. I don't think they saw it, but... 
Name a card. Now, don't say ace of spades. Everybody says ace of spades. But name another card. Not the joker, either. Think of a number. Queen of hearts? Okay. So let's, uh, let's open the, the box here. And notice they're all uh, face up. And there should be one face down card amongst all the face up cards. There it is. Now, what was your card? This one. <laughs> queen of hearts, okay. Wouldn't that freak you out if that was a queen of hearts? <laughs> All right. I'll, I'll pay you afterwards. I'll give you your dollar like we arranged. No, I, we did not arrange that, did we? No. Okay. See? Oh. <laughs> I knew it. Everybody picks the ace of spades. All right. Now, um, so, uh, as a little kid, I grew up um, fascinated with magic, and then I studied the art of magic, and I learned uh, a bunch of secrets of how to fool people. And I also, during this time, developed a worldview. My worldview became this. Because amazing, impossible, unexplainable things can be done by trickery. All amazing, unexplainable, impossible things must be done by trickery. In other words, I came to the conclusion that a lot of magicians have come to. There's no supernatural. It's all a bunch of tricks. And anybody who really believes in the supernatural and... Um, miracles or, or uh, anything in the Bible, those poor people are gullible. That's, that's what I, I uh, developed, especially when I, I turned about 18 or 19 and knew everything. Okay? Um, I, I would put people who believed in miracles and the supernatural and God, I'd put them in the same category as people who believe in UFOs and the Loch Ness Monster and Bigfoot. Okay? Um, in fact, I remember uh, between my freshman year and my sophomore year of college, I went to school at Northern, but I took some summer classes at Wabansi College, right down 47 here. I delivered a speech in a speech class, and I defended the proposition that all supernatural claims, including miracles in the Bible, can all be explained by trickery. Okay? I was arrogant enough to say um, it's all tricks. And I remember, I, see, I didn't realize how offensive that was to half the class. And I remember there was a, a girl in that class, and uh, her parents were missionaries, so she was a believer, and she started welling up with tears. And um, she felt sorry for me because... I believe that, and I felt sorry for her that she was so gullible. Right? I'm sure she prayed for me, and if I ever run into this girl, whoever she is, I want to thank her for praying for me. Okay? But that was the worldview that I developed, that because it could be done, because amazing things can be done with tricks, everything that's unexplainable, including miracles, is all trickery. Now, that's called a worldview or a paradigm. A paradigm is 
uh, what we use, the frame of reference we have in our minds, the, thing, the, 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 the filing system, you could say, we use to file information and process the world. Another term for it is presuppositions. We all have presuppositions about how the world works. And when data comes into our mind, we analyze it according to our presuppositions. Now, you all have presuppositions about how the world works. You may not even know what they are, but you have them. And once you have a presupposition, they're hard to change. Now, let me give you an illustration, uh, the classic illustration of a, of a presupposition. What do you see up there? Um, quickly, how many of you see a, a rabbit? Raise your hand if you see a rabbit. A few of you. How many of you see a duck? The rest of you see a duck. You go, what? Well, the rabbit, well, first of all, the duck, there's his bill, and his, he's facing this way, and his eye is right there. The rabbit, on the other hand, there's his eye, there's his nose, and this, these are his ears pinned back. Okay? So, now, what's hard is however you first see it, if you first see the duck, it's hard to shift and see the rabbit. Or, on the other hand, if you first see uh, the rabbit, it's hard to shift and see the duck. Let me give you another one. What do you see there? Do you, how many of you see an old lady? Okay, half of you. How many of you see a kind of a younger, pretty lady? Ah, half of you, okay. See, uh, the old lady, this is her mouth, her chin, her big nose. Got a wart there, okay. The young lady, this is her necklace. This is her jawline, and she's turned over looking, her, looking over her shoulder in the back. See that? That's a, uh, that's a paradigm shift. Same lines, same drawing that everybody sees, but people categorize it differently. And once you see it one way, it's hard to see it another way. Okay? Now, why is that important? Well, there's a form of Christian apologetics. Now, what are apologetics? Apologetics... Uh, is a, a technical term that we use to describe defense of the Christian faith, defending the Christian faith, all right? Apologizing doesn't mean walking around saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm a Christian, okay? It, it, we're to defend our faith. There's a kind of apologetics called presuppositional apologetics. Now, presuppositional apologetics says, you know what, before... I try to prove to you that God exists and the Bible is true and Jesus is really who he claims he is. Let's first start with your worldview. Let's start with your presuppositions. Let's start with your paradigms of how you view the world. Because I can give you all the facts in the world to prove my case, but if your paradigm is that miracles can't happen and there's no God... Whatever evidence I'm going to give you, you're going to reinterpret according to your view. All right? Um, good example of this is conspiracy theories. Those who hold to conspiracy theories, no matter what evidence you give them, they reinterpret that evidence to support their theory. So if I'm like paranoid, and I think Ryan's out to kill me. 
I go, he's trying to kill me. And Kristen says, well, no, he likes you. Why else would he buy that present that he bought for you last week? And I go, well, because he's obviously trying to soften me up before the kill. So whether he's nice to me or mean to me, my presupposition is he's out to get me. Therefore, whatever evidence is offered, it just supports my presupposition. So presuppositional apologetics says, before I give you the evidence for the faith of Christianity, let's first examine your presuppositions because you're just going to reinterpret everything anyways. Okay? So here's what I want to do. I want to give you some evidence for the fact that Jesus Christ really died and rose from the dead and is King of kings and Lord of lords and Lord and Savior. But before I give you that evidence, some people already have a paradigm in their mind where you're not going to buy that. You're not going to buy the fact that he died and rose from the dead because in your mind, your paradigm of how the world works is a thing called naturalism. And naturalism says miracles are impossible because all there is is the natural world. Okay? Now, I came to the conclusion that naturalism, naturalism was true because of my magic belief, right? because um, impossible things, because they can be done by trickery, therefore everything is done by trickery, that's impossible. But most people today buy into naturalism, and maybe they do it overtly, maybe it's just subconscious, but most people buy into naturalism because you've gone to school whether it's grade school or high school or college or higher education, the prevailing worldview, especially if you have a science background, is naturalism. Naturalism says all there is is the natural observable world and everything has a natural scientific explanation. Therefore, any supernatural claims about Jesus walking on water or the Red Sea parting or any kind of miracles... Um, you hear that and you recategorize it in your mind as, well, those people are deluded or it's trickery or it has some other explanation, but it didn't really happen that way. And no amount of evidence will convince you until your presuppositions are changed. So before I give you the evidence that Jesus really rose from the dead, let me first examine the paradigm of naturalism in your mind, okay? Naturalism, again, says all there is is the natural observable world, and the world operates by nothing but naturalistic principles. There is no supernatural. Now, let me give you four reasons that doesn't work, okay? Four reasons you shouldn't buy naturalism. And we talked about these last week, but let me quickly go over them again. One, the existence of stuff. Okay? The naturalistic world says um, all there is is matter. There's no God. But the problem is, to buy naturalism, you have to abandon naturalism to answer the question, how did stuff get here? Right? Science, all scientists today believe that there was a beginning to the universe. That one day there wasn't stuff, and now there is stuff. It all began. You ask them, well, how did that happen? What was the cause? The principle of causality is a part of naturalism. Things happen because they're caused. They go, we don't know. So, 
We're to say everything happens by natural principles and by the principle of causality, but the very beginning of the universe happened without a cause. So to get started in naturalism, you have to abandon naturalism. It's self-defeating from point zero. Okay? Second argument against naturalism is not only the existence of stuff, but the existence of what I call cool stuff. <laughs> because not only did stuff pop into existence, but all by itself we're told it formed into people and birds and pigeons and fish and solar systems and intricate, beautiful, well-ordered things. And you go, that's impossible. It doesn't work that way. And the answer is, well, give it enough time, it, it will happen. Adding time to stuff doesn't produce people. But naturalism says it does. Okay? Third thing, not only does stuff form into cool stuff, but it has formed into, and here's a term, irreducibly complex stuff. What do I mean by that? Well, um, not only has the stuff formed into planets and suns and lakes and fish, but there are certain systems that are interdependent that, that um, random mutations could never produce. Think of your, your vision. Your vision involves a lens in your eye and rods and cones, but not only that, it involves a nervous system that is connected to a complex computer called your brain. Why would an eyeball form on its own? It, it, it only functions attached through the nervous system and to the brain. That whole complex system, it's irreducible. Okay? It's, it's, uh, it's similar to if you were to build a house of cards, 50-story house of cards, that's the intricacy of the eye and the brain and the cell. The human cell is an irreducibly complex system. It can't evolve piece by piece. It all comes together in one lump sum. So naturalism says give it enough time and an eye will form and the nervous system will form and the brain will form. Wait a minute. It, it makes no sense unless it all comes together at the same time. So there's irreducible complexity. And then there's just the existence of information in your cells, your, your, your body's cells. There's enough DNA information to fill a 1,500-page books of code. Matter cannot produce information. Yet there's a library of information in every one of your cells. So the presupposition that the natural world is all there is doesn't hold up. Naturalism hasn't been proven. It's just been assumed. It's just been asserted. It has been foisted upon you. And if you've bought it, it's not based on anything at all when you look at the presuppositions behind it. Theism, the fact that there is a God who created, is far more 
rationalism, far more rational than naturalism. Now, if naturalism isn't true and theism is true, then God exists. And if God, then miracles. If there's a God who created this whole thing, there is a God who can intervene and do impossible things within this natural world that he has created. So now, uh, if we've laid a foundation, a presupposition that God exists and that he can intervene, then let me now give you some evidence for the most incredible miracle that ever took place. That is, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, why does that matter? Why why should that why should we of all the things we could analyze why is the resurrection of Jesus the most important thing well all of christianity is built on the foundation of his resurrection if he died and rose from the dead then that validates that he is who he claimed to be who did he claim to be god and the savior your savior if he died and rose from the dead you know what else that proves that proves that there is life after death. Right? It also proves that the reason he died is valid. Why did he die? To pay for our sins. So a lot hangs on whether Jesus Christ really died and rose from the dead. Your eternity hangs on that. And if it's not true, then we're wasting our time here on Sunday morning. We should be sleeping or out drinking a beer somewhere. Right? So, um, let me give you, and I'm going to push this really fast. Well, here's four reasons naturalism fails. Stuff, cool stuff, irreducibly complex stuff, and information. All right, now, six reasons you can believe Jesus rose from the dead. The first reason is because I'm going to call certifiable circumstances. What do I mean by that? Well, um, you know the the goofy magazines that are, are in the checkout aisle World, World Weekly News, where I, I scan their website, um, they have things like this. Kate Middleton only owns one pair of shoes. Right? A woolly mammoth, not the bones of a woolly mammoth, but an actual woolly mammoth was found in the backyard of a farmer in Iowa. Amelia Earhart's bones were found on the island of her body and the bones of Amelia Earhart have been found along with the bones of Gilligan and Ginger. <laughs> now, um, some people say, well, those goofy stories are no different than you Christians believing in, in Jesus. Right? Somebody snuck a silly story about a guy who died and rose from the dead and being God into history and gullible Christians somewhere along the line bought into it. Right? The problem with that is this. The story of Jesus being crucified and buried and rising from the dead is not told in some goofy fashion like this. It's told as real history and the history in which this story is embedded could be verified or discounted if it wasn't true. Now, the illustration I like to give is this. What if one of these goofy magazines came up with a story and said there was a man who was put to death in Washington, D.C.? It happened during the weekend of the presidential inauguration, 
It was done by a conspiracy of uh, political figures and Supreme Court figures and well-known clergy. And uh, they killed this guy. He was buried in Arlington National Cemetery. The, the grave was guarded, and three days later, the grave was empty. If certain people were named, the president and Supreme Court justices and Billy Graham, and dates were given, and we tried to, to enter this story into history, nobody would believe it if it wasn't true because it could be verified or de-verified, if that's even a word. Okay? But when the story of Jesus' death and resurrection is reported in the Gospels, here's what it says. The New Testament states that Jesus was crucified in the city of Jerusalem during Passover. That's the busiest holiday in Jerusalem. He was placed on trial before the high priest Caiaphas and his father-in-law Annas. He also stood trial before the Jewish Sanhedrin. He was questioned by King Herod. He was sentenced to be crucified by Governor Pilate. A prisoner named Barabbas was released in place of Jesus. A man named Simon from Cyrene helped Jesus carry his cross. He was buried in the tomb of a man named Joseph of Arimathea. The tomb was sealed and guarded by soldiers. This is far too full of names and places and things that could be uh, discounted if it wasn't real. Right? This is not the stuff that myths are made of. Now Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, writes this. He says, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time. Now look what he says here. Most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Why does he say that? He's saying, here's the gospel story. There were witnesses. Paul goes on to say, I'm one of the witnesses. The apostles are witnesses. And there are five other, 500 other witnesses still alive. Why does he say that? He's saying, if you don't believe me, go check it out. Discredit this story if you don't think it's true. Right? So evidence number one is the story of the death and resurrection of Jesus is, is not told as a fairy tale. It's told as a real historical event. And Paul in the Bible even says, go check it out if you don't agree with me. That's, uh, that's argument number one. Argument number two is Christ's empty tomb. All right? um, by the way, there is no doubt that a real historical person by the name of Jesus of Nazareth really lived. Other world religions don't believe that Jesus was God, but they don't, they don't say he was just a myth. Right? Muslims embrace him as a prophet. Jewish people say he was a false prophet. In fact, are you aware of this? The Roman historian, Senator Tacitus who wrote about the first century, actually said that the, the Christus, the Christ, was executed by Governor Pontius Pilate. Right? So there's no doubt that he lived, that he was sentenced to die by crucifixion under Pilate. Now the Bible says he was put into a tomb, and three days later that tomb was empty. Now, um, how do skeptics get rid of the empty tomb? Well, there's two major theories. One is the stolen body theory. 
they say somebody stole the body. Well, who would have stolen the body? Well, there are three candidates. First, there's the disciples, but that no, makes no sense. Remember, Peter denied that he even knew Jesus that night, and the others fled. Then all the disciples deserted him and, and fled. Are we to really believe that these band of cowards, they watch Jesus tortured and crucified, they get together and they go, hey, got a plan. Let's uh, sneak up on those guards, overpower them, steal the body, and pretend that he's alive, and we'll build this thing called Christianity on a lie, and the, we'll really trick them. We'll tell people that they're supposed to be men and women of integrity, but it's all based on a lie. Let's go. Let's do it. No, that's, that takes more faith to believe than uh, that he really rose from the dead. The other possibility, the Jewish authorities could have stolen the body. But if they had the body, the last thing they wanted was a new sect of people leaving Judaism. Couldn't they have proven that this Christianity is, is a bunch of garbage because here's the body of your dead Messiah? They didn't produce the body. The others would have been the Romans. They had access to the tomb. But they, the Romans wanted one thing, peace. They didn't need a, a group of people following a new king. They could have produced the body. But nobody produced the body. The missing body is strong evidence that the tomb was empty. Now, the second theory that people have pointed out uh, uh, to explain the empty tomb is the swoon theory. This says Jesus didn't really die. He fainted. And in the cool air of the tomb, he was revived. And he survived. Now, here's the problem with the swoon theory. It doesn't take crucifixion seriously. All right? When you are crucified, um, people think you die by, uh, by bleeding. No, you actually die by suffocation because you're hanging on this cross, and to actually exhale, you have to push up on your feet and breathe out. So a person who's crucified, there's this agony of breathing. To breathe, you have to breathe up and down on the cross. It's clear who's alive and who's dead. Right? But here's the account of what happened. It says, now... It was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath because the Jews did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath. They asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. Now, why do you think they broke the legs? If, if you have to push up with your legs to exhale, if they break your legs, you can't push up anymore and you're going to die of suffocation. Right? So the soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the others. Because why? They're, they're wreathing. They're going up and down. Boom, break his legs. Boom, break his legs. But what about Jesus? But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, well, how, how do we know he's already dead? He's just hanging there. They did not break his legs. But just to be sure, instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. Now, that wasn't just a random act. That was a, boy, it looks dead to me. But just to be sure, boom, right through the side into the heart. He's dead. These guys were professional executioners. They knew when a man was dead on a cross. And to make sure, they stabbed him with a spear. All right? Now, are we to really believe Jesus is taken from the cross, wrapped in a, a burial cloth, put in a tomb. He wakes up, 
breaks through the, the, uh, the cloths, throws the stone away, overpowers the guards, and shows up that day in front of the apostles looking fully alive? Impossible, right? In fact, there was a skeptic by the name of Strauss who wrote this. It's, it is impossible that a being who had stolen half dead out of the sepulcher, who crept about weak and ill, wanting medical treatment, who required bandaging, strengthening, could have given the disciples the impression that he was a conqueror over death and the grave, the prince of life, an impression that would lay at the bottom of their future ministry. Now, let me quickly touch on the next one. The next one is just simply the creation of the church. How do you explain one day in Jerusalem 3,000 Jews who are intensely loyal to Judaism, cutting ties with Judaism, and following Jesus, and getting baptized. You know, Jews are not known for abandoning tradition quickly. But they were convinced that their Messiah was crucified and raised from the dead. Creation of the church. Number four, the courage of the apostles. All the apostles went on to be martyred. Except John, it's questionable that John may have lived into old age. Now, you go, well, that doesn't, uh, that doesn't prove anything because the 9-11 uh, terrorists, they were willing to be martyred for their faith. So does that prove Islam is true? No, no. That's not the argument. The argument is not they were willing to die, therefore Christianity must be true. The argument is... What turned these cowards who all fled on the night of the arrest into martyrs who were willing to die? Something took place between their cowardice and their courage. And you know what it was? They saw Jesus alive. All right, let me move on. That's how uh, they all died, different ways, okay? Last one, the conversion of skeptics. Um, Do you know Jesus, first of all, this will shock some of you, Jesus had brothers. Oh, what about the Virgin Mary? She was a virgin when she conceived Jesus. And um, after she had a normal marriage with Joseph, and we are told about his brothers in Mark 3, it says uh, they said he is out of his mind. They didn't believe in Jesus. They thought he was nuts. In John 7, 15, it says, For even his own brothers did not believe in him. But then, after his resurrection, we read this in Acts. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So, by Acts chapter 1, now they are believers. How do you explain these unbelievers becoming believers? Well, back to the 1 Corinthians passage. Paul says, For I delivered... To you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, he rose, he appeared to the 500, and then look at this. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Who's James? That's his brother, James, who later on became the head of the Jerusalem church. Jesus, in appearing to people, to the disciples, to Mary Magdalene, to the 500, he made sure he put in one more appearance to his brother James. And I don't know if they had a little bit of sibling rivalry, but if I were Jesus, I would have gone, Hi, James. It's me, Jesus. 
told you so, but I don't, I don't think Jesus probably did that, right? Um, but James becomes a believer because of the resurrected Jesus appearing to him. Now, I won't go into the other one, but there's one more skeptic by the name of Saul of Tarsus, who hates Christians, and later on becomes the Apostle Paul, who writes half the New Testament. How did he become a believer? Jesus appears to him in his resurrected form, and he becomes a believer. Now, the last one I'm going to save for next week. The last one is confirmed by prophecy. It's one thing if this death and resurrection of Jesus just happened as an isolated historical event. But what we discover is it's the culmination of the entire Old Testament. The entire Old Testament points to a coming Messiah who will die and rise again. So the fact that this all happened in history and it was all prophesied beforehand is strong evidence that it's true. So what did we cover today? We all have presuppositions. Some people don't believe. Why? You buy into naturalism. Why do you buy into naturalism? It's not rational. Once we, get rid of rash, uh, once we get rid of naturalism, that says there's a God. If God exists, he can intervene into reality and do miracles. Did he? Yes, he did. All of history, your calendar today points you back to a man named Jesus. The year 2012. Why? That's the year it points back to when he was born. Who was this Jesus? Well, the Gospels tell us about him. And ultimately what he did was he died on the cross to pay for your sins. It's, it's rational, it's valid, it happened. Now the question is, have you personally trusted him? Why did he die on the cross? To pay for your sins. We as sinners have rebelled against the holy God. We must be punished. But he stepped into our place and took that punishment. And all who believe in him all who turned from their rebellion and turned to him as Savior and Lord were forgiven. That's the gospel. That's the good news. Let's have the worship team come on up and let's pray.